My parents did not love me. I'll never forget hearing those words spoken by a middle-aged woman named Paula to a group of students in a high school assembly. She paused long enough for us to brace ourselves to hear her story of abuse. Maybe she was beaten by her parents. Maybe they made her do an inordinate amount of housework. Maybe, maybe, God forbid, she was molested. But then she continued. My parents did not love me. They gave me whatever I wanted and let me do anything I wanted to do. She went on to explain to the students that she got to do everything that they wish they could do. And her unhindered freedom ended up leading her to hurting herself physically, emotionally, relationally, and sexually. She continued, even as a young girl, I knew my parents didn't really care about me. Paula's point was that discipline is love. And the students should be grateful if they have parents who care enough to create boundaries and and care enough to exercise discipline patiently and graciously in their lives. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs chapter 29, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. Children naturally stick things in light sockets, touch hot stoves, don't they? Children naturally wander into the street. They naturally hit others when they feel angry. They naturally eat the entire plate of chocolate chip cookies and then lie about it with chocolate on their face. Discipline is a parent's Love. It's love in action that says, no, that's not good for you. That's going to hurt you or others. Discipline from a parent says, I love you enough to help you right now. I love you enough to help you to learn an important life lesson. Well, just as parents love their children enough to help them learn when they do wrong. Our Father God loves us enough to help us when we're harming ourselves or harming others. If our desires and our choices, if our appetites are taking us down a road that leads to trouble, if it leads to nowhere but destruction for ourselves and our family, wouldn't it be loving? Wouldn't it be gracious if God got in our way 
If God did whatever it took to help us, even if what it took was rather severe. Well, Psalm 6, our sermon text for today, is a prayer of David when he was experiencing discipline from God. I hope you have your Bibles open to Psalm 6. If not, please find one of the black Bibles. Turn to Psalm, the sixth Psalm. We're studying the Psalms one at a time. And uh, my job is pretty simple. We read what God says in his word. And then I explain it. And then I apply it to our lives. So, as I've studied Psalm 6 this week, Three concepts have been a great encouragement to me. Three key words, three key concepts. First of all, David's experience in discipline. That's what the entire psalm is about. Secondly, David's prayer in discipline. That's verses 1 through 7. And then David's confidence in discipline. Verse 8 through 10. And friends, my prayer is that we will all come to the place where we actually thank our Father for His discipline in our lives. So let's consider each of those three concepts from this psalm. We've already read the psalm. Thank you, Jimmy, for doing that. But I want you to notice first David's experience of discipline, which is the entire psalm. Look at verse 1. We understand from verse 1 that the difficulty that David is experiencing in this psalm is seen as directly from the hand of God in the form of discipline. Look again at verse 1. David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David understands that what's happening to him right now is a rebuke from the Lord and discipline from God. It's not just one of the bad things that tends to happen to all of us under the sun. Discipline is different than other kinds of suffering because it's directly connected to our sin. It's directly connected to choices and actions and passions and loves that are leading us in the wrong way. Discipline is unique it's, it's the unique and purposeful experience. It's, it's what others have called a severe mercy, a difficulty designed by God to actually help us, to teach us, to correct us as his children. Psalm 6 is the first of seven psalms which are called the penitential psalms. Those are prayers or poems or songs in response to sin. And we notice from this entire psalm, maybe you saw it while or heard it while Jimmy was reading it, that this discipline is causing severe anguish in David's body and soul. Look at verse 2. I'm languishing. I'm weak. I'm losing strength. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it under this difficulty. At the end of verse 2, my bones are troubled. 
that the pain that David is experiencing is going deep down into his bones. Have you ever experienced a pain like that? Martin Luther says, when the heart is troubled, the whole body is faint and broken. That's what happens when we experience discipline from the Lord. It goes from our heart to our bodies. Look at verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled. Someone just this week at my house said, I've never hurt this deeply before. It's a soul level anguish. Maybe think about a time when when you had done wrong and you knew it, a time when your actions brought on terrible consequences for you or for those that you love. How did you feel during that time? Can you identify with David's anguish in body and soul here? Look at verse 6 and 7. We know that the Psalms are are, are poetry. So they're full of, of, of colorful or vivid words. And here, David is using poetic imagery to help us see the escalation of his depression and despair. He goes from feeling to flooding to saturation. Look at verse 6. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears and I drench my couch with weeping. He's not just moaning. He's crying, and it's not a little cry, it's a flood, so much so that he drenches his couch or his bed with his weeping. He's experiencing anguish in body and in soul over the sin that he's committed. And then in verse 7, the king slumps into hopelessness because he can't see how this is going to turn out well. Notice the emphasis on his eyes. He can't see how this will end well. Verse 7, my eye is wasting away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And and notice in verse 3 that David's anguish is intensified by the feeling that this is never going to end. See there at the end of verse 3? My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long are you going to allow this to go on? How long am I going to experience the devastating consequences of my own sin? How long before you release me and restore me? How long? You ever been there? Derek Kidner says the poignant how long is often heard by the psalmists. And we learn that, I love this, all of God's delays are maturing either of the timing or of the man. And we notice here from Psalm 6 that the discipline is not just an internal discipline of feeling a certain way, but this discipline is actually coming from his enemies. Look especially in verse 7, my foes. Verse 8, 
you workers of, an, of evil, verse 10, all my enemies. In David's case, the discipline is a physical threat to his life from physical enemies. He's the king of a kingdom, and there is a war going on specifically against him personally. Verse 4, deliver my life. In verse 5, he's concerned about death and the grave. When we consider all that this discipline is going on here, we see that it's coming through the hand of his enemies. It's causing such anguish to the king's soul. Has it occurred to you that very likely this is the same context as Psalm 3? Many think that Psalm 3 through 7 are all within the historical context of King David fleeing from his enemy, who was his son, Absalom. Now, if you've never heard that story, it's tragic. We talked about it when we went through Psalm 3. I'll I'll only give you a nutshell right now, but... Absalom had grown bitter against his father, the king, and and he turned the entire country against him. He was a good-looking, charismatic young man who took to the streets and gained popular opinion, and he turned the country against his father, the king. And then he led an insurrection against him and forced his dad to flee for exile into the wilderness. 2 Samuel 15 recounts the story. It says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And what made that discipline even worse was that David knew that it was because of his own sin. David knew that he brought this on himself. He had committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, he ordered her husband to be killed in battle. Adultery and murder. God loved David too much to let him keep going down that road. So God sent one of his prophets named Nathan to David, and here's what God said through his prophet Nathan to David. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David knew when Absalom led an insurrection against him that this was the consequence of his own sin. I'm not sure whether Psalm 6 is in that historic context or not. Seems very likely to me, doesn't it, to you? But the inscription doesn't say that. So we have to hold that open-handedly. Listen, That wasn't the only time King David sinned. That wasn't the only occasion of God's discipline in King David's life. 
He could be writing about any other form of discipline. And that's important because the inscription does tell us that King David wrote this psalm for God's people to sing and to know how to respond and what to do in the midst of discipline. Look at the inscription. The inscription is as inspired and preserved as the actual psalm itself. It's part of it. The inscription is to the choir master, which means that this was to be sung by the choir or with the entire congregation, with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. By the way, a Sheminith just means eight. We have no idea eight what. Could be an octave of eight could be a stringed instrument with eight strings. We don't know. The point is that this is a song to be sung, to be learned from, a prayer to be prayed by me and you when we experience God's discipline. So Psalm 6 gives us an insight into David's experience of discipline. Whatever external threat was going on and whatever internal anguish he was experiencing, he knew it was directly from the hand of God as a means of correction. So what does David do? Verse 1 through 7, David prays. Look at verse 2. David prays for grace and healing. He cries out, asking God to be gracious and not break him through this, but rather heal him. O oh Lord, verse 1, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be Gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Martin Luther again says the psalmist teaches us here that there are two rods of God. One of grace and goodness. Another of anger and fury. Two rods of God. Discipline is not God's anger and fury. Discipline is the fatherly love and grace of God to his children. Discipline is healing. David prays again, verse 4. He prays for deliverance and salvation. He calls on the Lord, turn back. Turn back rather than turn away. Deliver my life from the hand of this enemy. Look at verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there's no remembrance of you in Sheol, the grave, or death. Who's going to give you praise? God, don't let me die this way. Don't let me bring shame on you and your kingdom because of my own sin. God, please turn back and rescue me. Oh, how interesting. 
How interesting to consider when King David's orders, his specific orders to the commander of his army against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, were this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. Now, David is experiencing the consequences of his own actions. He says, God, please don't draw back from me. Turn back to me. Rescue me. William Plummer says, beyond all question, we have here a confession that hope of deliverance for a sinner in any distress is found in the unmerited compassion of God alone. That's our only hope, friend. David prays in discipline, verse 1 through 7. Then I want you to notice in verse 8 through 10 that David has some kind of seemingly sudden burst of confidence. Read it, verse 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David makes a bold declaration to his enemies. Depart from me. I like how William Plummer explained it. He said, the king orders his enemies off with all of you, all of your menaces and taunts and disheartening speeches. He said, I'm not going to listen to you any longer. I will be distressed by you no more. You have tormented me long enough. And why does David have this kind of confidence? Because he says in verse 9, the Lord has heard my prayer, has accepted my prayer, and will act on my behalf. Now, how did he know that? Maybe God was going to turn away from him. Maybe God would not answer his prayer. Maybe God would give him what he deserves. Nope. You know why? Because God promised that he wouldn't. When God called David to be king, we have the record of the promise that he made in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said, I will be to you a father. You will be to me a son. When you commit iniquity, I will discipline you with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from you. Your kingdom Your house shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
That's before Bathsheba. That's before he murdered her husband to cover it up. God said, you're not just my king. You're not just my hired servant. You're my son. God brought him into a covenant relationship and said, I will hold you fast forever. And if you do wrong, I'll discipline you with the rod of men, but I will not forsake you. When David became king, God made a covenant with him in which God promised that nothing can separate you from my love, not even your sin. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Zach read for us earlier from Romans chapter 8. Listen, we have all sinned against God so wickedly, so terribly. We are rebels against God, shaking our fist, saying, thanks for the life. Now I'll take it from here. We have broken every one of God's laws and shattered it into dust. And our sin separates us from God. Our law-breaking crimes demands God's justice against our sin. But God does not leave us hopeless. God sent his son, Jesus, the king of his kingdom, Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus the righteous for the unrighteous. He sacrificed himself, paid the penalty of our sin to bring us back to God. And now by faith in Jesus, through grace alone, nothing of ourselves, but by faith and grace, rebels like us, are restored. We're adopted as sons of God. Listen to John 1, the Gospel of John, the very first chapter. God became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Speaking of Jesus, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. By faith in Christ, rebels are adopted as sons of God. That's amazing. We don't get what we deserve. We're brought in. Secured by a covenant. Galatians chapter 3 says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And as sons of God, Zach read for us earlier, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God 
Are you ready? Not even our sin. That's why that whole section started by Paul saying, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies us. God is the one who declares us righteous in Christ. Who is there to condemn? I'm reading. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, and now he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Jesus is our lawyer arguing our case before God. Who's going to condemn us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm sure that nothing, Paul says, nothing. He lists a bunch of stuff that you would think might separate you from the love of Christ. And he says, nada, zip, zero, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, that's the gospel. We're secure. By faith and grace in Christ alone. Not by our religious works or our morality or our church attendance. By grace, through faith in Christ alone, we become the sons and daughters of God. And as the sons of God, guess what? We experience discipline. Psalm 6 applies to me. It applies to you. We experience discipline because just like God's covenant with King David, in 2 Samuel 7, the father of our King Jesus says, because you are connected to Christ, my son, my king, I will be your father. You will be my son. And if you sin, I will discipline you, but I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always keep my steadfast love toward you and never depart from you. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Our experience of discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12 is an everyday, every week, normal part of the Christian life. We can always be sure that when we're experiencing the discipline from God, we can always be sure that our Father is disciplining us out of love and grace, not wrath and anger. There's a big difference between those two rods, friend. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just start in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Look at verse 7. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate child and not a son. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12 teaches us two very important lessons about discipline. Number one, because of the gospel, we can be sure that our Father is always disciplining us out of love and grace, never in anger or wrath. His justice against our sin has already been satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not punishment. This is corrective, loving, gracious discipline. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating us as sons. Listen, friends, God never, ever will deal with us according to our sins in Christ because he deals with Christ according to our sins. That's Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our sin from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Question. Do you fear God? Not in the, but in the reverential, holy, he's God, I'm not. Worshipful of the Lord, the kind of fear that results in him being the king, not me, of my life. 
Hebrews 12 teaches us that we can be sure it's always in love and grace. And the second thing it teaches us is that we can be sure that our Father is always disciplining us for our good. Did you see that? Look again, verse 10. He disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness, so that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. William Plummer again says, God loves his people too well to let them wander on in sin. God loves us too much to let us go down that road. So God may use many different things to bring discipline into our lives. But always to work holiness and righteousness. He might use the consequences of our own sin. He might ordain difficult circumstances to teach us important lessons. He he might more often use the words of our spouse or our children or maybe one of our friends or fellow church members to get our attention and correct our ways. Friends, how we respond to any form of discipline depends a great deal on how we view that discipline. If we see it as God's grace for our good, then we'll receive it in humility rather than buck it or run away from it. That leads us to our second point. Not just our experience in discipline, but how do we respond in discipline? When we recognize that this is God's grace for our good, you know what we do? We run to God, not away from him. We pray. We actually thank God for it rather than hating God because of it. We pray. even when we know it's our own fault. Rather than hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve, we turn around and we run to our Father who has a heart full of love and grace for sinners like us. Proverbs chapter 28 says this, He that covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will obtain mercy. In the invitation of the gospel, the invitation of Jesus is so powerful, so tender. Hebrews chapter 4 puts it this way, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we turn to Jesus, we see nothing but holiness, but Jesus does not reject us. He says, I came for sinners. Come to me, those of you who are tired of your sin and want a better way. Those of you who have been walking around with the unbearable burden of your guilt, I'll take it from you and I'll replace it with the beautiful burden of following my ways. I will lead you in righteousness. 
My burden is easy. My load is light. Come to me, Jesus says. In our experience of discipline, we pray. And friends, you can also have confidence. You can have confidence in discipline. You go back today and read it again. Verse 1 through 3, we can have confidence that discipline is God's grace, not wrath. Verse 4 through 7, we can be confident that as sons of God in the new covenant, nothing will separate us from our Father's steadfast love, not even our sin. And verse 8 and 9, look at that, verse 8 and 9, we can be confident. You see that sudden change, that sudden Courage and confidence from King David, we can be confident that, get this, the Lord will defeat the enemy of sin that remains in our heart. God doesn't deliver us from discipline, God delivers us through discipline. So when we pray, it changes the way we think. It's not God, please. Get me out of this. It's God, please do your work through this. Uh, There's something that needs to be done in me because you're a loving and gracious father. You would not bring suffering into my life unless it was going to accomplish good purposes. So accomplish your work, God. Cause every sinful enemy in my heart to depart from me through this discipline. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He says that the suffering that you're suffering now is going to work the glory in you. God's glory in suffering. Here's how it happens. Because we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. And what's the good? That we might be conformed to the image of Christ. All things do not work together so that our bank accounts will be fat, so we'll drive a better car and have a better house. All things will work together for our good so that we look and walk and talk and live more like Jesus, our King. That's the good. And Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad about that? Psalm 6 has been a prayer and confidence in the midst of discipline. Just as parents love their children enough to help them to learn when they're doing wrong, Friends, through the gospel of Jesus, we've been adopted as sons of God. And Christians, our Father loves us enough to do what it takes to help us when our desires and our choices are taking us down a road that leads to nothing but trouble and destruction for you and your family. My prayer this morning is that we all grow that we grow in our understanding of God's covenant grace to such a point that we actually thank God for discipline. Let's pray together.
Father, your word says this. Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, we should not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For you wound, but you bind up. You shatter, but your hands heal. Thank you. Thank you for the grace of discipline. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.